So as Luke has been writing to this Roman official named Theophilus, remember the purpose of this whole book is to give him certainty about the things that he had been taught. Theophilus was a follower of Jesus, but he had questions. Do you ever have questions as a follower of Jesus? Do you ever have doubts? Be honest. Do you ever have doubts? Yeah, I think we do. I think it's normal. And as Theophilus is, is going through the, the, these different stages that new believers go through, and he has some doubts, Luke sets out to write to him this, if you will, history, this apologetic. And, and he's doing this for the sole purpose of giving Theophilus certainty about the things that he had been taught. And he has been building this letter systematically over and over he has been building it to get to the crowning point which we now get to today he is building this letter to get to chapter 24 everything that he has mentioned beginning with the birth of Christ all of the miracles Christ's teaching even the death of Christ builds to this moment what he is going to talk about what we're going to cover this morning is the greatest single event in all of time in history. It is the greatest single event. It is the linchpin. It is the keystone. It is the bedrock, however you want to term it, but it is the bomb. It is the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't know what kind of week you've had this week. Maybe you have had just the lousiest week you could ever have. Maybe, maybe it has just been rough. Maybe you've had the best week you'd ever have. Chances are if you had the best week you could ever have, this is going to be a lousy week this week, right? But I want to tell you, there is no circumstance so bad. There is no doctor's diagnosis that's so awful. There is no job situation. There is no relationship trouble that you are dealing with right now. There is nothing that you can't face if you can face it with the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I also want to tell you this, that life is full of real problems, that, that there are relationship issues. Our lives seemingly at times are just crumbling and falling apart, and we do our best to come in here on a Sunday morning and fake it, make everybody believe that we're all got it together. We know better because we know inside ourselves we're all crumbling and falling apart, right? And if you don't have the hope of resurrection, it's a miserable life. It's a miserable life. You might as well take the philosophy up of eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die. Which really, that isn't much to live for, is it? Not much to live for. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're not going to spend our time here, but I, I just want to begin here. Because Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, who spent a lot of time with Luke, Luke spent a lot of time with Paul, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, when he's writing to the Corinthian church there, he, he gives to us th this great understanding, if you will, just kind of the history and, and the proof of Christ's resurrection that, that ought to be in every one of our minds when we're thinking about this. When, when people are talking to us about the resurrection, that ought to immediately trigger in our mind, 1 Corinthians 15. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this, Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. Note in your Bible, if you're the kind of person that marks in your Bible, note that word gospel, because this is key in Paul's mind. He's going, to, he's going to develop the gospel here, okay? And he's going to give us the gospel in its just base form. Gospel is a term that we throw around a lot, like, man, pastor, I really appreciated you preaching the gospel today when I was preaching out of Proverbs, like, is that the gospel? Well, technically, hopefully the gospel was in there. But, but what we're talking about here in terms of gospel is, is the good news, the, 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 the good news that all of mankind needs. And, and Paul here is stating very clearly what the good news is. Verse 2, this gospel is by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed it in vain. And here's what, it, here's what the gospel is, beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. We saw that last week. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Stop with me for a second. What scriptures did Paul have to call on then? Did he have the gospel writers to call on then? What scriptures did he have to call on, church? Old Testament. He had all these Old Testament prophecies. And what Paul is pointing out to the Corinthian church and to us, if we're paying attention, is all of this was clearly told to us. All of this was clearly predicted. All of this, all of this is a matter of Old Testament record. Don't, anyone let, don't ever let anyone tell you that your Old Testament is not of any value to you. You need your Old Testament. You've got to have your Old Testament, because if you don't have your Old Testament, then you only have half of the story. Paul continues on, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with what, church? What part of our Bible that we have now? Old Testament. Does the Old Testament talk about the, the, the actual coming from the dead of Jesus? You bet your life it does. You bet your life it does. If you just, and I know nobody, nobody publishes them, but if somebody had published only an Old Testament, you know, we only publish New Testaments, right? Sometimes if somebody had published an Old Testament, could you lead somebody to Christ with just an Old Testament church? You bet you could. You bet you could. And now as he develops it, now that he's given the scriptural proof, now look at verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive as of the writing when Paul's writing, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I want to just submit this morning that the gospel is the very truth that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again. And I want to submit to you this morning that in the Apostle Paul's mind, there was, there was no doubting the facts of this. The, in his mind, he would say this if he stood here this morning, these are the facts and they are undisputed. And we couldn't argue with him. Luke, now, as we turn to Luke chapter 24 is one of four gospel writers who write about this event. And in Luke, as he pens these words, he details for us something that I want you to see. Something that I want you to see because there's an amazing transformation that happens to a group of people in chapter 24. Look at chapter 24 and verse 11. 
Luke says this, these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. The words, we're going to read the passage of scripture in just a second, but the words are that Christ has risen from the dead. And the disciples hear that and they don't believe it. It seems as an idle tale to them. Now we have to just stop for a second. How many years were the disciples with Jesus? Three years, right? Had he talked to them about being killed and then being buried and then rising again, had he talked that all through with them? Numerous times correct? And yet when it happens, what happens to their hearts? They doubt. They don't have belief. Folks, if the very people who heard the words from Jesus verbatim from his mouth could doubt, will you and I ever wrestle with doubt? Will we? Yeah, we will. Before this chapter is over, though, I want you to fast forward all the way down in verse 34. There's two men, and we'll get to this next week, who are on the road to Emmaus, and they encounter Jesus. And, and this is their report, saying, The Lord has risen and indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he had made known to them in the breaking of the bread. All of a sudden, they've gone from faithfulness, faithlessness, excuse me, to total belief. And what we're going to find over the next couple weeks is there are three things that change their mind. And, and I want you to get these down right now, and I want you to, to pay attention to them as we go through these texts the next two weeks. The first thing that changes their mind is, is that they see an empty tomb. They see an empty tomb. Peter and John, we're going to see in our text today, they go to the tomb, they find it empty. That's the first thing that happens. Secondly, they encounter a risen Christ. They meet up with Jesus himself. And thirdly, they are convinced to believe God's word as it had been given to them. They're convinced to believe God's word as it had been written and given to them. So with that in mind, let's back up to the beginning of chapter 24. I'm going to read the first 12 verses this morning. But on the first day of the week... At early dawn, we might call that dark 30, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Stop for a second. Stones just don't roll away from tomb doors. This is a giant stone, right? So, Put yourself in the mind as we're reading this. I, I, I want you to be thinking. I want you to, to if almost, experience this passage of Scripture. Put yourself in the mind of a group of women who are carrying spices back to a tomb, looking to encounter, encounter a dead body. But on the way, other gospel writers record for us, on the way, they're having a discussion. What are we going to do about the stone? They're having this discussion on the way. As they're going, picture in your mind grief-stricken women who have just seen a man that they have followed for three years, unceremoniously, with trumped-up charges, being, being convicted and then put to death in a horrible way, and they saw his body less than two days ago, 
They witnessed his body go in this tomb. They didn't have time because of Passover to come to do all the preparation that they would do at the spices. Then they had to wait for Friday night, all day on Sabbath, and then early, early, early on Sunday morning, as soon as the Sabbath laws are lifted and there's no restrictions on them, they grab those spices and they head to the tomb. And on their way there, they're like, how are we going to get the door open? How are we going to get the stone out of the way? You got that in your mind now? Let's go back to the text. They found the stone, verse 2, rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, I love this. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? It's as crazy as meeting somebody for lunch and saying, yes, I'll meet you over here you know, at, at, the, you know, at the McDonald's or Wendy's because we have great choices in town, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll meet you over there for lunch, but drive up to the cemetery thinking that you're going to find them there. Why are you looking for the living where the dead are? Verse 6, he's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. The power of doubt is strong, church. The power of doubt is strong. Don't think when you're doubting that, oh, I just got to have a little more faith and I can break this on my own. No, it's going to take the power of God to break your doubt. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Most likely, Peter, impulsive Peter, I will prove you wrong. You just missed his body somehow. Like, how do you miss a body in a tomb? Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen closed by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Father, in the moments that we have left, what we don't know, teach us, please. What we do not have, give to us, and what we are not, make us through Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, we pray. Amen. So this morning, two simple points. One, I want to look at the facts of the resurrection, and then I want to look at the significance of the resurrection, okay? The facts of the resurrection. It's important to note, as I mentioned before, that these facts are shared by all four gospel writers. They're corroborated in Paul's writing with a long witness list that we already looked at, and so these are facts this morning. Okay. What's interesting to note also is, is if we had the time and we could put together the harmony of the four Gospels, all of these things line up. All of these things that they say line up, even though they deal with different circumstances of the Lord's resurrection. I want you to see first, though, and keep your finger here and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. I want you to see a couple times where Jesus is going to predict that this is going to happen. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, he says this, in response to the Pharisees asking for a sign, 
He says in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay? That, that, that was clear in their understanding what, they, what he meant by that. Three days and three nights, I'm going to be buried. Okay? Fast forward to chapter 27 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. The religious leaders took Jesus' words to heart more than his disciples did. How do I know that? Verse 62. So the next day after Jesus is buried... That is, after the day of preparation, so this would be on the Sabbath day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, okay, and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. What do they do? Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard to soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the stone secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay? Why would Matthew include this detail? Well, because there's this crazy cockamamie teaching that's going on that somehow the death of Jesus was faked and that somehow the disciples went in there. He really wasn't dead. They revived him. He was just in a swoon and they brought him out and he never really died. He never really rose from the dead. I want to tell you the religious leaders were convinced that something bad was going to happen in terms of this. There was going to be some kind of stunt. So Pilate, or, or, yeah, Pilate calls their bluff and he says, okay, take your guard, go, guard it, and in fact, seal it. Seal it. So when a, Roman, when a Roman official seals a tomb, do you suppose that anybody is just going to go in there and just break that seal? Especially if he puts a Roman detachment of soldiers there. Is anybody getting through to that stone? No. Okay. One thing I want to cover here is, is as you read this, Jesus says three days and three nights, and you're like, I'm doing the math in my head, and I'm kind of counting the calendar, and I don't see how that works. Well, an emphatic way of Jews saying that, that someone was going to be gone for a part of three days, maybe if they were traveling, they would say to somebody, I'm going to be gone three days and three nights. It was just a way, it was their, their, in their common vernacular of saying this. And really what they meant was, I'm going to be gone for three days. And Jesus is saying this, there's going to be a part of three days where I'm going to be in that tomb. Think with me. He dies on Good Friday, correct? And before, before Passover, which is sundown on Friday, that's when Passover begins, they have to get his body in the ground. So is he technically buried on Friday? He's buried all day on the Sabbath, correct? And now when Luke picks up the account, what day of the week is it? First day, which is Sunday. Okay, so Jesus, don't, don't argue with the scriptures here. It's, it's the way that, that the Jews use their language. Jesus is, has been in the tomb now for parts of three days, albeit small parts of two of the days and one whole day, but he's been in the tomb for parts of three days. And so we learn from John chapter 20 and verse 1, we don't have time to look at it, that Mary Magdalene is in this group of women and she gets to the tomb first. Just like when Peter and John go to the tomb, Peter gets there, or John gets there before Peter, but Peter runs on in. Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb first, 
And, and she gets there so much earlier than the other women that she leaves. You get the idea. You get the picture in your mind. Mary gets to the tomb first, and before you know it, as the other women are walking up, here's Mary running back, and she's got this just like, what is going on? Look on her face. She is going back to report to the disciples that the body of Jesus is gone. She's wondering what's happened. Mark chapter 16 and verse 3 tells us that the women were having this discussion about who would move the stone. And when they get there, they find that the stone is gone. We see that here in verses 2 and 3. They get there, the stone is gone. And, and so that means the seal is broken, which means that, that somebody has come and tampered with this tomb. What's interesting is, is that that account that I read to you in Matthew 27, the women would have no idea that a guard had been posted, would they have? Because this all happened on the Sabbath. They were going there in faith that somehow they were going to be able to get into that tomb, but if the guard had actually been there and posted, would the guard have let them into the tomb to touch the body of Jesus? No, not at all, not at all. What we find out from Matthew chapter 28 is that now the guards, for fear of their life, have to participate in a cover-up, don't they? They go and report to Pilate, who, and then he, Pilate has to deal with the religious leaders. I'm like, I don't know what happened, but the body's not there. And they basically are paid off. They're paid off to lie about this for the rest of their life. So as these women get there, they get this angelic rebuke. I want to just spend a couple minutes on this in verses 5, 6, and 7. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. And then he says a key word, remember. 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 Why did he have to say for them to remember? Because they obviously weren't what? Remembering. There's a great lesson here for us all. We would all do well to remember the words of Jesus. I'm really good at remembering critical words that I got like 20 years ago. Anybody else good at that? I'm really good at remembering like, like just terrible, stupid details that don't matter, like C.J. Stroud threw for you know, X amount of yards and that many touchdowns and that. I can remember that. If I can remember those kinds of things... How much more can this mind remember the words of Jesus? And yet, I'm not so great about remembering the words of Jesus. I want to show you twice in Luke, for sure, where Luke clearly details where Jesus told them what was going to happen. Keep your finger here and go back to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Seems like forever since we've been in Luke chapter 9, because it has been forever. Luke chapter 9 and verse 22 Right after, in verses 18 through 20, that Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So, so let's just go through the facts that Jesus says. He must suffer many things. Did they witness that? Did they witness his suffering? Church, wake up. Did they witness his suffering? Yes. Did they witness him being rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes? They saw it all happen, right? Did they witness the fact that he died? 
you would think, you would think that those three events would trigger in their mind, hey, he told us this was going to happen. Would you not think that? And so that you would think that the fourth thing that he said was going to come true, right? Here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing, church. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. In the middle of all of this horrible adversity, we're no different than Peter. Remember, Peter was already ready to go back fishing. We're already checked out too, right? We're already checked out. And, and, and there's a great lesson in here. And the angels have to give the message, hey, just remember what Jesus said. Go forward from here and go to chapter 18. I want to, see a, I want to show you a second, second time that Jesus warns them, tells them, predicts it. This is actually the third time that he's done this. Verse 31, and taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written, where is it written, church, again? The Old Testament, everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Did that happen? Did he end up in Roman hands? Yes. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Did that happen? And after flogging him, did that happen? They will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But catch the next verse that Luke includes here. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. It's so important when we're in front of God's word that we're actually working really hard to grasp God's word. And it's so important that we have the spirit there teaching us God's word, people. It's not just enough to sit down and read your Bible and say, I read my Bible. You've got to grasp it and understand it, don't you? They're, they didn't grasp it. They didn't understand. So no wonder when the women come here, they have to be reminded, hey, remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day arise. Not only do we need to remember the words of Christ, but you and I need to take a lesson from the angels. Did the angels like throw in extra details, or did they only share with the people what Jesus had said? They only shared what Jesus has said. They're, they're quoting Jesus here. That this, remember how he told you, and then they, they repeat what he told them. Can I just say this to us in love? The world does not need another opinion about, about what the end of life is going to be. The world doesn't need another opinion about what's going to happen with the next presidential election. The world doesn't need another opinion about whether intel is a good thing or a bad thing. You want to know what the world needs? They need to know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Intel is not going to solve Johnstown's problems, people. Christ is. And what do we spend most of our time worrying about? Well, how is this going to affect my life? How is this going to do this? I want to tell you, the greatest thing that's going to affect your life is whether or not you believe that Christ rose from the dead. So you see this unbelief. And so, when Mary Magdalene reports, Peter and John take off running. I love this. You got, you got the middle-aged guy and you got the young kid. The young kid gets there first. The young kid gets there and he's like, what do I do, right? I'm not going in there. 
Peter, the old guy, huffing and puffing, gets there, and he's like, I'm going in there. Rushes right in, finds it empty, which is another proof of resurrection. Remember the, fall, remember the religious leaders, they were worried that the disciples would concoct some plan, right? If there was really a plan by the disciples, would Peter and John been running to the tomb? The last place they're going to go is to the scene of the crime that they supposedly had purported upon the people, right? But they still don't believe. It took Christ appearing for them to believe. We're going to see that next week. But I want you just to consider this morning some significant things about the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because to me, one of the greatest, and I'm not going to cover them all. I'm not going to even try to cover them all. I just want to cover about four or five with us this morning, the significance of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 17, Paul writes this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Without the bedrock of our faith, we have no faith, right? Without, without any resurrection, there, there's nothing. What we're doing here this morning, all the songs we sang are a sham. The reading of the word is, is just worthless if there's no resurrection. Do you understand that? We have no salvation. We have no rescue. Paul, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, says that salvation comes from confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart, what church? That God, what? Raised him from the dead. It's not believing that every bit of the word is true. That's important. But, but where does salvation come from? It's, it's confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It is the absolute bedrock of everything that we believe, and it is the foundation of everything that we do. It has to start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me give you some practical implications about what that means. So when you're at work tomorrow and you're sitting at lunch with some of your coworkers and they're, they're complaining about the economy and then somebody says, you know, man, you're really quiet, Jack. What's wrong with you? And he's like, I just got some really bad news. I mean, my wife just got some really bad health news from the doctor. You got to remember this in your mind. Yeah, I know Jack and his wife are atheists. They believe nothing, but there's hope for them because Christ rose from the dead and they need to know that. They need to know that. When you're sitting down at 7.15 on a Wednesday night with a handful of first graders who are just like trying to herd cats in Awana, and they're acting up and they're picking their nose and they're, they're not doing what you're telling them to do, you got to remember this, their only hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus. And you're there to help them to understand that Jesus died, that he was buried, and then he rose again. When we as a church are given an opportunity with the kids in Johnstown that possibly may come our way like a LifeWise Academy where we can bring kids from the public school and bring them into a church building, what? What do they need to know? 
that, that Christians are, that we're just loving people and that we're, just, no, they need to know that Christ died, was buried, and rose for them. When you're praying for your missionaries, you're praying that the truth that Christ died, was buried, and rose again comes out loudly through their words and is backed up by their life. It is the bedrock. It is the absolute bedrock. Without it, all that we're doing here is a total sham. Secondly, the resurrection is God's clear and definite affirmation that the sacrificial death of His Son satisfied His sense of justice. Let me say that again because that was very wordy. The resurrection is God's clear and very definite affirmation. That means that He's saying it was good, that the sacrificial death of Jesus satisfied God's justice. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says this, that he, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Okay? It says that, that, that he took our sin on himself, and, and, and that when, 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 when Christ is on the cross, and remember we saw this last week, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in that moment that the Father turns his back, and that the full justice and, and, and the full punishment of God comes down hard on Christ. And it's in that moment that all of our sin, past, present, and future, is judged in Christ. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. But if he dies and doesn't raise again, he's no different than any other man who died. Right? He's no different. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. So thankful that Romans 4 exists. In Romans chapter 4, Paul's talking about Abraham and this idea of Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. By the way, a little plug, when we're done with Luke, we're going to go back to Genesis and we're going to cover the life of Abraham. Because if you don't have the Old Testament, you don't understand your New Testament, right? We already covered that. So, verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Without the resurrection of Christ, we're not made right with God. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous before God. Our sins have been paid for, but we still aren't restored back to the Father. We're not justified because God hasn't validated it. Thirdly, I want you to see this. The resurrection is the guarantee of Old Testament hope. It's the guarantee of Old Testament hope. One of the oldest books, if not the oldest book in our Bible, is the book of Job. Turn with me to Job chapter 14. By the time that you come to Job chapter 14, we, we are dealing with a man who is, is desperately in the throes of grief. I mean, here Job has lost it all. He's lost all his possessions. He's lost all his children. And God graciously left him his complaining wife. Right? 
And so Job chapter 14, here's what, here's what he's feeling. He's writing what he's feeling. And you've got to be careful. Are feelings facts? Are, are they legit, though, in the moment how you really feel? <laughs> Verse 13, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. Oh, that you would just take my life and just throw me in the bottom of the pit. You ever been there? You ever felt that way? That you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and then remember me. And then he says this, if a man dies, shall he live again? What was Job's hope? What was Job's hope in the middle of all of that, that horror that he was going through? His hope was that, that somehow, some way, he didn't understand about Christ and the cross, but he understood that God was working his redemptive plan, and he was hoping that somehow, some way, there was hope for him to have a future. If a man dies, will he live again? And all through the Old Testament, the Old Testament patriarchs, and then the prophets, and, and even men like David, they're looking forward to something that they can't really see in the future. Do you realize how awesome it is to be a New Testament believer, to get to look back and understand that all this stuff happened? Put yourself in Abraham's shoe. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed God when God said, just go and do this. And like, okay, fine, I'll just go and do that. But really, what am I doing here, and how does it fit into the rest of your plan? So the resurrection is the surety or the guarantee of Old Testament hope. Fourthly, and I want you to see this because this impacts us directly. The resurrection becomes the theme of the New Testament church movement. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2. I think it's fair to say that the first church planner was probably Peter, right? Peter got up and preached a message, and all of a sudden there was a church. Most church planners would die for that, right? Just show up in Johnstown, preach a message, and all of a sudden, hey, we've got a new church, boom. Notice the theme of his preaching. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's all within God's parameters, all God's plan. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. God raised him up. He doesn't stop there. Move down to verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. It doesn't end there. He's still preaching. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. The theme of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost was the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. And if he emphasized one of those three points, it was the resurrection. And it doesn't stop there. Go forward to chapter 3. Peter and John miraculously heal the lame man, and all of a sudden there's a bunch of people there, and Peter starts preaching in verse 15 of chapter 3, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Keep going. Go up to chapter 4 in verse 2. Actually, go to verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Picture in your mind, they're now in the temple where weeks before, this is where the trial of Jesus has taken place. All this bad stuff has happened here. And, and the religious leaders have about had enough. They thought they had quashed this Jesus movement by killing him. And all they had done was just like lit a gasoline can on fire here. 
And they're really irritated. It says in verse 2, they're greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus what? His, his wise teaching and all the things that he said. No. What are they really upset about? You want to, folks, you really, are you like me at times? You just want to be an irritant to the world around you? <laughs> you want to be an irritant to the world? Proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, 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 you really want to get somebody's goat? Just go out there and just, not cockily, just, just confidently proclaim this. Jesus Christ died for my sins. He was buried and God raised him up. He's alive today. He's at the right hand of the Father. That'll get you some attention. Continue on. When he's addressing the rulers of the people, verse 10, look what he says. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And then in verse 20, when they're told to stop preaching this, here's what Peter says. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And that is the mark of a true follower of Christ. He can't help but speak up about what has happened to him. There's a final significance I want to cover. Since Christ is risen, all of mankind is accountable to this one. All of mankind is accountable. Whether or not they choose to be accountable, whether or not they recognize that they're accountable, whether or not they would even claim his authority over their life, it doesn't matter. Philippians 2 is there, and it's a matter of scriptural record. Turn with me. Let's end in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Because Christ is risen from the dead, all of, all, of, all of mankind is now accountable to him. Paul develops this thought of humility by talking about Christ who empties himself and, and takes on the form of, of, of the creator, takes on form of creation. He becomes a servant. And then in verse 9 he says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him. At what point did God highly exalt him? It began with the resurrection, didn't it? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's two things that are always seemingly tied together in Scripture. Romans chapter 9, verses 9, or 10, 9 and 10. And, and here, Paul, in, in Philippians chapter 2, and, it, and it's the way of salvation. Confess him as Lord and acknowledge that he rose from the dead. And you see, only a true Lord rises from the dead. Only a true, all-powerful Lord rises from the dead. And see, here's the thing. The event, the resurrection, what Luke records for us in Luke 24, that event, that fact, confirms that Christ is Lord over all. And as Lord over all, he will one day be confessed as Lord over all. Oh, how much better to bow the knee to him as Lord while there's still a chance for grace, amen? Then to wait, and, and, and then at the final day, have to confess him as Lord where there's, there's no hope, there's no forgiveness available. I love 
Resurrection Sunday, but one of the things I hate about Easter Sunday is how we trivialize the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, it's our one day to preach about it and have Easter eggs in spring. Everything's new. Guess what? It's the middle of September. It's raining. It's kind of gross out. Kids are back in school. You're laboring at work. You're dealing with your relationships. And guess what? The message of resurrection is just as powerful today as it is on Easter Sunday. He is risen, church. If you haven't confessed him as your Lord, may I beg of you today, consider this Christ who rose again from the dead and claim him as your Lord. Father, it makes all the difference that our Savior is risen. We don't worship a martyr. We don't, we don't worship a man who did good things and then died and, 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 we, and, we, and we commemorate the tragedy of him losing his life. No, we celebrate the fact that he has risen from the dead and we put great hope in the fact that because he has risen from the dead, we too one day will rise. And that is our hope. That is our only hope. For those in this room that don't have that as their hope, may today that be their hope, we pray. For those of us who do have that hope, may we live as those who genuinely have real hope, bedrock hope. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.